This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located right in the heart of Times Square, right where the beat of the theatre is, where Broadway and Off-Broadway all meet to give their very best, and where that which is very good goes out across the country, and that which is very, very good comes back to us from the regional theaters. It comes back to us to enhance and enrich the theater in New York. The theater is a very important part of New York City. Millions of visitors come to New York each year, and the mecca is the theater, the magnet and the magic of theater. These seminars are an outgrowth of the WINGS programs. We are perhaps one of the oldest, longest-running organizations devoted to enhancing and enriching the community through the theater. We still continue to do what we did many, many years ago, starting with our Sage Door Canteen. We go into hospitals. We bring live professional theater into hospitals, nursing homes, and in nursing centers and aid centers. We have these seminars, which is designed to show you a behind-the-scenes look at what it is to work in the theater from the perspective of the producer, the playwright, the director, the performer, and the designer. All of this is, comes together to show you how it is to work in the theater. Today's seminar is on the performance. And we have a distinguished panel, as we always have, and it is headed by Jean Dalrymple, who is our standard in the theater. She is a lady of many hats. She wears them well, and she has worn all kinds of them in her life. She is a producer, a director, and an author. And she is also a member of the board of directors of the American Theater Wing. And Co-chairing with her is Brendan Gill, who is author and critic, and critic of not only the theater, but a lover of the theater and the theater's architecture as well. And Brendan is also a member of the board of the directors of the American Theater Wing. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the wing, and I welcome you all here, and I will turn this over to our co-moderators immediately, who will then introduce this distinguished panel of performers to you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. On my far right is Margaret Tysak, 
uh, currently starring in Letters and Lovage. In my mid at my middle right is Ron Perlman, currently in A Few Good Men, and on my near right is Robin Morris, currently in Six Degrees of Separation. All of us today are in a state of extreme contiguity. <laughs> Jean? On my far left is a wonderful actor, Mike Hodge, currently featured in A Few Good Men. A wonderful play, by the way. And next to him is very lovely Faith Prince doing a difficult role in Falsetto Land. And next to me and to her is an old dear friend, James Whitmore, and he's starring in that adorable play About Time and also Handy Dandy done in repertoire. Jean and I, I was going to say that Jean and I was told that we weren't to editorialize about the, the plays, but you see what happens at once. And uh, when she says the Faith's role, that it is difficult, I could imagine all the other actors bridling and saying, just a minute if you want to talk about a difficult role. Uh, and whether or not a play is good or bad or adorable or not adorable, but that's Jean for you. Now speak, speak up. Well, I would, I would like to... James here to talk about his wonderful two plays because they need help and I think you <laughs> should all go to see them. Oh, don't we all? No. <laughs> uh, it's a repertory, a repertoire, I, I like that. It's much better than repertoire. Uh, concept and it isn't often done. I now know why. Uh, but uh, there are two new plays uh, and one is by William Gibson. Thank you for saying my plays. I think that's lovely because that's, of course, the frightening thing about the theater, that it is so cooperative, and they do. And very, very often authors or directors or even actors don't realize that they belong to everybody that's in that play, everybody, the lighting people and everybody. And the one play is by William Gibson, the man that wrote The Miracle Worker and Two for the Seesaw, and, uh, and the other plays by a man named Tom Cole. They're about, uh, and I suppose you could assume, that they're two, two character plays. And that of itself is an interesting subject, uh, the two character play. But, uh, and they're uh, about basically, and I suppose one could imagine this to be true from my visage and, and my whitened hair, that they're about older people. And that, of course, is one reason that it attracted me so tremendously, because it is such an immense subject, and I don't hesitate to say problem uh, in our society, the, how we're going to deal with the warehousing of us old folks. And there is, a, a, unfortunately, a tendency to want to warehouse us uh, and, and put us aside. Uh, we aren't going to let you, you know. <laughs> it's not going to happen. We're, we're very vigorous. Uh, and, and, and that was what attracted me to the place. I certainly will not attempt to tell you what the plays necessarily in specific detail are about. I think they're v immensely funny in the Sean O'Casey kind of funniness, which is the truth of ourselves. And we are immensely amusing people, all of us, uh, if given a chance to be so. 
Uh, I can think of uh, nothing else. To, would you want me to go further? I think I've spoken yeah. enough. Yes, Have I, I done well? Wonderful. <laughs> 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 One of the plays about old people that I don't think we're going to see that many more productions of, simply because of the number of us who are old uh, living in America at this moment, is King Lear. Yeah. Uh, but then as a comedy, that doesn't stand up. It simply yeah. does not stand <laughs> up. And I've always been at odds with my, with my uh, fellow reviewers in feeling very strongly that the improvement in Lear made in the 18th century by which it had a happy ending and he and Cordelia went off into the sunset together was absolutely crackerjack. <laughs> <laughs> so, in, 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 in any event, one of the things, is, as Jim was saying, about this, the, these two plays that they're doing back-to-back, uh, -back, if that isn't too saucy a, a word to use in respect to old age, uh, is the degree to which a two-character play may be thought to uh, bear the taint of a stunt, because of course from the dramatist's point of view it's a very difficult thing uh, to bring off, in effect to seem to people the stage when there are only two people there. Uh, but do you feel that kind of pressure in the acting of it yourself? Or no, not at all. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. No, not at all. Yeah. Actors can't afford, it seems to me, but maybe they can, some can. I cannot afford to think in those terms. Mm -hmm. The obligation is always to the other actor and to the piece and to the story that you're telling, you know, to of course, the sequence that yeah. you're going to unfold to them. And, and that's it. It's twice as many people as you've sometimes <laughs> played on the <laughs> yes, stage anyway. So yes. you've, got, you've got a full cast there. Yes, yes, yeah. we do. Yes, I see Mike nodding his head as the actor is to the responsibility. Yes, yeah. uh, I think the greatest responsibility is to the other actors on stage. And once you. Once you give to them, they can then give to you, and it's a it's a, an exchange, a building process. And you must give to the audience. Exactly. So they will give to you. Exactly. I mean, once you're able to give to each other as performers, then you can right. give to the to the act to the right. audience. Otherwise, you're kind of struggling to keep up. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of the interesting things to me about a few good men. The sense of, I think, genuine excitement that I felt in the audience when a lot of people came on stage <laughs> because uh, in the old days there were plays in which there was a very large cast. Now the cast over the years for economic as well as aesthetic reasons, but mostly economic, the cast have been getting smaller and smaller. And it, it was a sense of reassurance that we felt when we saw so many coming on. And uh, that's true too, actually, of the six degrees of separation, that, that when the children all tumble on, on stage, that's, that revives and increases and enhances the whole sense of the uh, life. We all emerge more vitalized by that. It's a, it's a thrilling difference. So that would be one of the things that you have to uh, contest with. The, the, the fact is you have to give an awful lot of energy uh, if there are only two people on stage to, to make that connection. We try and avoid uh, having it be a contest, don't we? Yeah, <laughs> you have to. <laughs> you do. Yeah. It's more of a seduction, I suppose. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, uh, I've never been very good at that. Mr. <laughs> Tysak's play is almost a two or three character play. And I, I think that it's magnificently done by all three of you. And I say three because I think the lawyer in the last act is yeah. superb. Yeah. Paxton uh, Whitehead, yes. Yeah, yeah. and he's yeah. just delightful. Yeah. Tell us something about playing with uh, Maggie Smith. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, uh, funnily enough, it's... Um, <laughs> one feels a great sense of responsibility because you're, you're out there with arguably or not
you know, one of the greatest actresses and greatest comedians. And, um, but actually, we, we never, we never, we hardly ever talk about the work together or what we're doing. Um, the chemistry seems to be right. And it was Maggie who originally wanted me to play Lottie. And so therefore, I think she's extremely wise. <laughs> <laughs> but we really don't. I suppose it is perhaps, a, 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 I feel a fraud, and Isabel will say, well, go away if you haven't got more to say than that. But, but both Maggie and I, we, 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 don't, we don't talk about the work. The, 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 the difficulty of, of this play, if any, is the extremely heightened language of, of, of Peter Schaffer. And we often say it's like playing Congreve or Shakespeare every night. Mm -hmm. It's exposition from beginning to end. Now, it's, people who've seen it also know it makes it sound rather daunting. It's not, it's, it's very, very, very funny. But um, I think it's perhaps one of the most difficult plays in, in, in terms of, of, of energy um, that I've ever done, really. Mm -hmm. and, and playing with Maggie is a, a great joy, but we just, we don't talk about the work. Um, and whether that's whether she would talk about it to other people with different actors she was playing with, I don't know. But I very, very, very much doubt it, because I think she thinks if you talk about it too much, it kind of disappears. It's not, it's not her way particularly, and it's not maybe particularly mine. Um, I think maybe, without rambling on anymore, that's all I can sort of say. Well, uh, as Helen Hayes said in a little talk she made last night, the great actresses just do it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what you're saying. Well, I had yes. one experience yeah. playing with Maggie Smith, not to be sacrilegious, but we were part of a group of people speaking at a memorial service for uh, Rex Harrison a few months ago. And, uh, it was quite a joyous occasion as Rex would have wanted it to be, and, and, and everybody was uh, feeling uh, that they wanted to tell stories about him. And, uh, but because we all knew that Maggie Smith was going to speak, we were all showing off tremendously, <laughs> trying to outwit Maggie before she even began. And uh, to my astonishment, even the minister who was presiding uh, began to strike a very strong theatrical note, not necessarily with uh, equal success to Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that we ought to start talking now to all these young people that are here. We've talked about shows that are for older people. Can the rest of us go then? You're <laughs> <laughs> not going to get off that easily. <laughs> Tell me, where, start, say something. <laughs> hey. Uh. <laughs> Um, uh, well, uh, the play, <laughs> hello, um, the play that I'm in is not, it's, well, I'm young, I, I look a lot younger than I am, actually, um, but the play that I'm in is, is uh, interesting in the way you were talking about, it has so many people in it, it's, it's truly, inc it's wonderful to be in a cast that's so large, because I'm, us I'm usually in casts that are much smaller, and it's nice to see that in this day and age that mm. a play can be written where it employs, I mean, let's be honest, where it <laughs> puts so many good actors, you know, you know to work. Um, it's just been such a thrill to work on this play um, from beginning to end for me. Um, 
and there is a split in our cast where it's like the older people <laughs> and then yes. there are the kids and you're quite like, a surprise when you come on yeah the play it's funny the play it's 90 minutes non-stop action mm -hmm. and to me it's 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 the equivalent of like riding a roller coaster and the first about 25 30 minutes of the play is about it goes at this pace and then there's a point where it just drops and it just is non-stop and that's probably where I enter the minute where it just kind of drops and the ball is thrown and you have to the actors watch the play as it's being told and we jump up on the stage to tell our part and then we sit back down again all through the play mm -hmm. so there's this constant motion and you know there's this game going on uh, it's an analogy uh, of you just have to keep up there's there's no thinking there's no time to really prepare you're just on you know, and when you're on, you're just on. Mm -hmm. And it's the scariest experience Will there be ever. a difference in the larger theater than... Bigger than steps. The <laughs> 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 yes, that's part of it, too. That's really yeah. all. That's all. We start tonight mm -hmm. uh, in the bigger theater, so we'll see. Uh, yeah, we don't have the shape of that theater. Mm -hmm. yeah. We'll work just right. well, yes. think, almost as well as downstairs. Yeah. In the, but, and, uh, but what is so interesting is that the older people in the play and the young people in the play are not only old and young in terms of their actual years, but of course it is a, a, a combat situation and the children <laughs> regard their parents with such wonderful <laughs> contempt and, and uh, when, when they begin to attack their, their parents and just Don't the, tell too uh, much. No, I won't. I won't begin to tell you how it comes out because nobody knows how it comes it's out. It's very therapeutic performing uh, this play. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what the audience recognizes, and you can tell as it's going on, uh, the shock of recognition, every word that those bratty children utter has been heard by all of us again and again. <laughs> and so the audience is thrilled to, to hear it and to share what has already been an experience in their lives. Yeah. It's a perfectly wonderful play in, in many respects, but in that respect, among others, it's a wonderful play, and in the same degree to which it used to be said, well, Shakespeare couldn't possibly have written Shakespeare because he wasn't a noble and wouldn't have known how people behaved at court and all that. Here is John Guare, who was childless, knowing more about how to write about parents and children than any parent of even so many as seven children, for example. Yeah, it's everything <laughs> you've ever wanted to say to your children. Yeah. Uh, to your parents, Freudian slip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you s it's funny because we get to watch the audience while we're playing. And it's just so wonderful to watch the audience during those kind of moments. Just that you see all the parents in the audience just go, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and all the kids are just, you know, you know, or everybody in the audience, the child within everybody. It's just you can see people just love, you know, the, the playing of the play and just really get involved with it. One of the okay. things we always like to know is, how did you get into this play? I auditioned. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, I think mean, you had really. asked Ron, too. Mm -hmm. How did you how get into this? But I, <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. Ron, no. <laughs> <laughs> Very uh, did you, how did no. you come into A Few Good Men? Um, by plane. Um, <laughs> literally, that's the case. Uh, I've been uh, out on the West Coast for the last couple of <coughs> last few years, um, and uh, so this is sort of a, a culmination of a long-standing dream of mine. It was a job that was offered to me without auditioning, mm -hmm. maybe the first and last <laughs> that <laughs> will ever uh, happen. But it's like you know, my 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 earliest 
dream in life was to be able to put enough weeks together to, cl to claim unemployment insurance. <laughs> um, that took me about 10 years of being an actor to do. Because uh, you have to work for 20 weeks it's a, if, you, if you live in New York. Uh, my next dream was to, to get a job without having to go and, you know, and audition. Uh, auditioning is the most terrifying experience. I don't care who you are, how long you've been doing it. I just don't audition well, my, you know. It's like this, the, the line in a chorus line, you know, give me the job and, you know, I'll do it. And, um, but don't make me prove that I can. Um, but uh, this was, uh, this was uh, you know, so, so the, the, the first part of my dream came true, and that was followed closely on the heels of my greatest nightmare. Because uh, the first time I read the play, the play met me at the airline terminal, you know, they offered me the part. We, we made the deal. And, uh, you know, I had to come to New York immediately. So the play met me at the airline terminal. I got my seat. I opened up the play. I started to read. And I went, I can't do this. <laughs> um, I don't know anything about being a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps. Um, and uh, I get colds very easily with short haircuts. In the <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I'm like uh, thinking of, uh, of any excuse I can to get out of this now, you know, we're over Chicago someplace. Um, also having, uh, my one experience with the play was having seen it uh, when I came into New York uh, last Christmas and seeing my very good friend Stephen Lang perform this, this, this character. Um, was, it, was, it was remarkable. And there was no way that I ever wanted to begin to measure up. So all these horrible actor feelings of insecurity and, um, uh, you know, um, not being good enough. All, they all came right to here. And um, I walked in to see the production, now watching the production um, with the eye of having to go into it, and I finally realized that there are no props, there's no scenery, there's no set, there are just a bunch of guys standing there and they don't have any pockets to put their hands in. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so the terror mounted. And uh, I, was, I was incredibly, incredibly daunted because I had no feeling for the character. I had not really been on a stage in six years. Um, and uh, I, th I thought I heard my mother calling me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all I could think. Um, <laughs> plus the fact that uh, I was going to meet with the director uh, for a total of six hours to, to get into this play, where, where, you know, the people who preceded me had months and months to create these parts. Um, I went into it in five days uh, with uh, about nine hours of rehearsal altogether, th three of which were with the stage manager, and then um, I got actually six hours with Don Scardino where he told me everything I needed to know, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and then I uh, went on, and, um, and uh, I never sweat so much in my entire life. I felt like I was performing from the inside of a tuna fish can. <laughs> That's what it sounded like to me. You and were I'm wonderful. Oh, thank you. I'm not, I'm not sure, please. <laughs> we're going to come back to what you had that was able, you were able to bring to make this wonderful performance, because everyone has agreed that it is, where you brought it forth from. 
Mm. At some point, so you can begin thinking about that. I want to hear about faith now. I'm sitting there very quietly. <laughs> Thank you. I'm doing falsetto land at the Lucille Lortel Theater. Miss <laughs> Lortel is here today. And um, this is probably the most unique experience I've had uh, in the 10 years I've been in New York because I'm playing a, a housewife. <laughs> Nobody ever hired me to play a normal person before. So, um... <laughs> I was very excited. Um, I, I actually went in for the, the lesbians from next door, as they're called, and uh, I thought that was more my cup of tea. And uh, I got a call back and said, no, we'd like you for the role of Trina, which is the wife. And um, for those of you who don't know, Falsetto Land is one in a trilogy of three shows that William Finn wrote, both the lyrics and the music. And um, it's the last of that. I think March the Falsettos was 10 years ago. And uh, it was the original guys, Michael Rupert, um, Stephen Bogardus, Chip Zion, and uh, Alison Frazier did it, uh, mm -hmm. the wife. And so she was scheduled. She had a baby. And I saw her in an audition one day, and I said, thank you for the job. <laughs> Glad you had the baby. And uh, so we, we took it to Playwrights Horizons. And uh, it, it's an interesting piece. Uh, it's about a young boy, my son, coming did you, of age. Did an agent bring you to this? Because it's, yes. a, it's a far jump from Broadway, from the Drone Robbins. Yes, which had 65 people. <laughs> You're talking about large casts. I'd never been in such a large cast. I kept meeting people all through the run, you know. <laughs> uh, no, the real show was backstage. The Imperial was, uh, was an amazing place. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, yes, to a seven-person cast. You know what I think it was? I was going to say this. Sometimes your jobs come in weird ways because like 10 years ago, I think I auditioned for James Lapine for something. And you sort of think, well, I didn't get that. Blam. You know, it's gone. But people remember you for, and it kind of builds. It slowly builds. I'm on this person. I, I've worked for 10 years. Only been on Broadway once. Um, queen of off-Broadway. You know, I've done a million off-Broadway <laughs> shows. But it's sort of staircases, you know, and just builds and builds and builds, and people remember you from things. And I think um, when I walked in, James, you know, had remembered me from a couple of times, five years ago, ten years ago, and he thought, oh, you'd be great for this, you know, and I was so thankful, um, because um, uh, it was a kind of a natural, even though I'm Southern Presbyterian, you know, uh, she's a Jewish mother. <laughs> So I was, uh, I had to learn how to say bar mitzvah, uh, <laughs> which I do very well now. Um, William Finn says, I knew you were Jewish. And uh, it's uh, been very exciting that way because uh, the play is done all with music. Mm -hmm. And uh, Robbins was the standard, you know, musical theater, old time. And I kept thinking, oh, God, I've been, <clears throat> you know, I just was born 30 years too late. And... Uh, because I always think of my Judy Holiday, you know, those kinds of roles. So when Robbins came along, I was so excited to be a part of the standard musical theater and work with Jerome Robbins. And uh, Falsetto Land is such a, a different term. Because sure. James But Lepine it works so well. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. And for the first couple of days, I had a hard time doing the dialogue mm. with the music. And I would just watch Michael Rupert and, and uh, Stephen Bogardus and Chip Zion. Lonnie Price is doing it now. Chip went to Grand Hotel. And I would just watch them just sing things as they s said it. And finally, I caught on to it because there was no book. And uh, it's a very funny and moving piece. 
Mike, come see. What's your background? How did you come into the theater? That's an interesting story. <laughs> My degree is in journalism. <laughs> and I worked at the Washington Post for about five years. Mm -hmm. And I auditioned for a play. I had discovered theater when I was in school, but it was just something to do because it was fun. It was enjoyable. And one night while I was at work, I saw an audition for The Death of Bessie Smith, a show that I had been curious about, but I wanted to try acting a little bit. And I auditioned for what I thought was going to be like a one-scene role, and I ended up getting the lead. And around the same time, Robert Hooks was starting a company. I was in Washington at the time. He was starting a, a new theater company. I auditioned. They were training. Uh, they had classes. So I studied for five years down there. And then after working for maybe and the, the curious thing was, the last year I was at the newspaper, I remembered that I never went to work a whole week. Yet, I was never late for rehearsal. I never missed uh, a class. I was always there on time and ready to go. And I thought, maybe you should be doing this. <laughs> you know? And then after a while, I realized that I was making money at it without really working. It wasn't enough to make a living, but I thought, well, maybe if you really work at this, you can make a living. And that's basically what happened, mm -hmm. you know. Makes it sound as if journalism was too easy, that you never <laughs> missed anything. That was not, <laughs> that was not the issue. Yeah. No, it was, journalism is one of those things that um, gives you high blood pressure and <laughs> heart problems. What, what were you covering in Washington? I was um, in Washington around the time of the d demonstrations for the Vietnam War. Um, Watergate. Um, I didn't. C I covered city stuff, and when you cover city stuff in Washington, uh, even national stuff is is part of it. Yeah. So, and having a deadline every day, and and this was before car phones. So, you know, you're, you're writing your story. You've got to have the story the story done by six o'clock, or I think it was six thirty, and you've got the story done. And you've got a hole in it, and the only person you can talk to is in his car on his way home and you can't finish your story. Yeah. So it's just, it was just, and I found myself being much more relaxed on stage. Mm -hmm. Even though I had anxieties about my work and stuff like that, ultimately I just felt more at home. Was part of your desire to be on the stage because you had an exceptionally good voice? <coughs> oh, thank you. No, I wasn't aware of any of those things. And in fact, those first five years that I was doing the work, and this I'll, I'll never figure out, I was a nervous wreck. I mean, I was like this all the time, but I continued doing it until I eventually I got over it and mm -hmm. really learned to just enjoy it. I enjoyed the work anyway, but I was just so... That must have been invaluable, those five years of training yeah. and working. Does that company still exist in Washington? No, they folded, uh, I think they were around for maybe 10 years. I left yeah. in 75, 76, came here in 77, starved to death went back to D.C., did some writing on a TV series, a PBS show, and came back up here in 80, and it's been going pretty well since, thank God. Yeah. Jim, what was, your <laughs> what was your professional beginning? Did you go to the old drama school? Uh, no, no, I was only graduate. Almost ended uh, the American there for six months. Oddly yeah. enough. Yeah. Good enough. Rather appropriately. Uh, it was a decompression chamber when we came out of the, the darkness of World War II. I'd been in the Marine Corps for five years and had decided that the law wasn't for me, uh, nor it, uh, I for it. And, and uh, I came to New York and that's what the American Theatre Wing was founded for. That was the reason, one of the reasons at any rate, 
was to give returning servicemen a chance to get in back into the theater. And I hadn't been in it, but I lied and got into the American <laughs> Theater Wing. And uh, it was great because I had an opportunity to uh, study with people like uh, Phil Loeb and uh, uh, Billy Hansen and uh, uh, be talked to about uh, playwriting by Arthur Miller and Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine, but mostly Alfred Lunt, uh, people like that that you listen to, mouths agape and, and soaked it up and so on. And uh, so that was really how I got into it. And I, I didn't have any dependence at that time. Uh, as we all know, it's a dicey thing anyway, economically. And I just I had want to no interrupt you this yeah. minute because that's how these seminars came about. I realized how very valuable they were, that you could walk from one room to another. You could go from the director's room into a playwright, a, mm -hmm. into a, a Hammerstein who was well, setting Well, the showcase music. things were wonderful. And, and you learned about the Well, you did the scenes, and, and then, then you took those people were invited that could give you a job. And so that was, and it was good for me too, because I got mm -hmm. my first job through those showcases. So, I don't know whether they still have them, do they? No, what, was no. it, what was the first job? Oh, it was in Peterborough, New Hampshire, uh, in uh, Summerstock. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. You weren't playing in our town. But that's where it was yeah, written, I know, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, 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 we're doing a whole mm -hmm. summer of, of, of things. Mm -hmm. yeah. Was it easy living after that? God, no. <laughs> That's a contradiction in terms. Yeah. Easy living. I don't know. You didn't want you to go in. discovered that touchstone. You didn't want to go into the law, but now you're in the law in your latest. In a way, yeah, yes, yeah. sure. Through and the you're ready door. to be nominated for the Supreme Court one of these days. You look more and more <laughs> Supreme Court-like to God. me. Yeah. Can you go on with Robin? Would you go on on... on what you brought to what your background was. Um, we are talking about working in the theater and, and how you came to work in the theater. I think I started in the womb. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was just, uh, it was destiny. I mean, I don't really do think that, you know, I, I always, I never wanted to be anything other than an actress. Uh, and I probably, th I assume it had a lot to do with my mother and my father both being in the business. Mm -hmm. So. It was what I was familiar with, and it was what I was comfortable with, and I did feel that I was... I mean, at first, when you're a kid, it's a way to get your parents' attention. For me, I was the middle child, and it was a way in which I got my mom and dad to see me. You know, we would do little shows in the living room, and I went to theater camp, and... I mean, I played Nurse Ratched when I was 15 years old in a theater <laughs> camp. I mean, I always wanted to be an actress, and it wasn't until about three or four years ago that I started to think, Am I really doing this to still get the attention? You know, am I only doing this for the applause? Or am I really doing this because I want to do it, and I want to be good at it, and I want to, you know, <coughs> I want the experience. And through a lot of therapy, <laughs> and, and the help of, you know, friends, and, and, and just the experience of working in the theater and thinking about it. Did you study? Did you yes, I studied for two years uh, with a man named William Esper. And I studied uh, movement and voice and all that stuff um, when I was about 18 or 19. And I've been working professionally for 10 years. And I've been very fortunate, very fortunate. I, I don't take it for granted at all. And your parents didn't attempt to discourage you. Sometimes actual parents bit. do. A little bit. I mean, <laughs> they tell horrendous stories around it. No, I mean, there was nothing to tell. I, I grew up in the world of theater, so I, I mean, I was backstage at every show my father ever did. I mean, I watched my father put pantyhose on and lipstick <laughs> when he was in Sugar. I mean, you know, you really get a 
an inside look at what this business is all about. And if and anything, that's what did it. <laughs> anything should have very wholesome, very wholesome. Yeah, made me run. I would think that would have done it, but it didn't. So, but my father, you know, would say to me, "All they never said do it. They just never said don't do it. Mm -hmm. You know, they let me alone, but." They did want me to have a good education, so they never let me go to performing arts high schools or anything like that. And they wanted me to get a good education. And then, where did you go to school? I New went York. to a private school in New York. I uh -huh. grew up in New York City. Yeah. And then did that's begging the question of whether you got a good education. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah. you have the same professional training. Now, with, 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 it's odd to me that some people can get along without the audition. I never could understand how people could put up, sensitive people especially, uh, put up with the humiliation of the audition over oh. and over. Uh, that would have stopped me from being an actor the very first day. I would simply have burst into tears and gone into another line. Well, there run. were times when mm. I would leave an audition and say, I hate this. I do now. Mm. I can't tell you I don't. I leave auditions and I say, I hate this. I, I'm, I, 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 I'm terrible. They hated me. I'm quitting. I don't know why I'm doing I mean, I still do that. And I don't know if I'll never stop doing that. But uh, I don't think that's, I don't think you can wait till you not, till you don't do that to, to decide whether or not this is for you. It's just, it's what I want to do. And is it as it. much as of an ordeal in, in uh, Great Britain, Mr. Isaac? Is audition. Oh, they, we don't audition as much. Oh, you don't? We really, really don't. No, I don't know whether it's, and, and maybe auditioning seems to be rather more for younger people starting out. And very many people uh, in leading roles are, not asked to audition at all. It's something that's coming in, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's far far less. Why is that? Do you think? I don't know really. I don't. Is it because? I don't know. I probably the producers realise it's a pretty stupid way of <laughs> hiring people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, um, uh, it, it, and I, I I certainly never achieve very much from an audition. I think maybe if the director is very, very creative and, and you've got a wonderful atmosphere and you can really do a workout and they, then maybe they can find out something about you. But m most auditions, I, I... But did you audition when you were younger, before you uh, were... No, I, I, I didn't even uh, get to the audition, Isabel. No, I, <laughs> uh, How did uh, you no, start? Well, I, well, I, well, I, I, I went to a, a convent school. I, 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 was, uh, I was brought up in the East End of London and um, uh, it used to be frightfully fashionable to say that. I just say it because it was the, was the truth. And I went to a small convent school and uh, I really laughed and giggled a great deal and didn't... It was throughout the, the war, so you might think that's a, a contradiction in terms, but when you're a child, it was, uh, it was sort of exciting. And if your father said you were going to be safe, you were going to be safe. And it was okay. But anyway, someone came to the school and uh, I liked what they did and I auditioned for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and a lot of other places. And at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, uh, I did Eliza and Professor Higgins from Pygmalion in the same scene. <laughs> Wonderful training. They must have been so astonished <laughs> that they, they, they took me on. And in those days when... when <laughs> but you know, I mean, ignorance is bliss. And I, I really didn't know. There was a wonderful teacher called, who's still uh, someone I know back in England, Elizabeth Percy, and, and she encouraged me to go. And uh, 
I went there and I wanted to be a teacher because I thought, I hadn't really thought about being an actor. I, I used to come home from the shops and leap into the airing cupboard and pretend I was the lift girl and, and all sorts of farces and, and, and things, which must have meant I wanted to be an actor, but there wasn't a theatrical background. And then I went to RADA for two years and they said, no, you can't do the London University Diploma course because you haven't got the academic qualifications. So there I was, an actor. And at the end of it, I auditioned for the first civic theatre in England as they used to have this wonderful name, character juvenile. <laughs> juvenile. And, um, and, th and that was how I started, really, a sort of a, uh, uh, a slide and a scurry and a sudden awakening, really. I, 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 I didn't want to be an actor all my life. I wanted to be all sorts of different things, but maybe fate was good in a way that it sort of helped me along that You're that satisfied road. now. Um, I think possibly, actress. knowing what I started with and what I, I had, I, I, I think I was probably, it, I am sort of happy that it worked out the way that it did. I wish it wasn't still as, you, Robin was saying about it's daunting and it's scary, and I think actually, really, we, I think we have to keep that. It goes with the territory, and I don't think you're ever going to lose it, and when you do and think you're fireproofed, I think you've had it. <laughs> I, I mean, it's the awful, horrible truth, really. Well, in Europe in general, whether in England in particular, but in Europe in general, there's a more formal approach to the process of becoming an actor and, and having a, a, a traditional method of moving up. And in, and in Europe, you can become either an actor or a dramaturg or a, a, a even playwright and um, belong to the state. Uh, in, in America, we have always been so helter-skelter about everything. And there isn't any particular formal method by which one would declare at the beginning of one's life, I'm going to be an actor, and here is the straight path up. It, 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 it's all zigs and zags. And, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons that uh, auditioning, we know has been going on in this country for 50 or 60 or 70 years. We can tell from old movies where people are auditioning in old movies that this is the way it has always, always been. And I think it's because everybody is a quasi-amateur in starring, including the producers, including the theater owners, including everybody. Nobody really has a formal method of approach in this country, although we keep trying to have one, we don't. Didn't work as it didn't work at Lincoln Center either, which was a kind of a dream that we would have a formal place in which there would be repertory theater and a kind of uh, convention of how to, how to develop a whole core of actors, and none of that has happened. In fact, the only traditional method we now have is the tradition of television, of people emerging. Also, I think there's a more, a more availability of theater in, in London, and so you are able to see people more easily doing things. And also, Manchester is not as far from London as Los Angeles or sure. Chicago or St. Louis or Minneapolis is. So you can constantly see people doing different roles. And, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I think part of the tradition of the English actor is to do as many different roles as possible in order to work with somebody, yeah. whether it's, it's a director or a star. And, and so there's that constant availability of, of producers mm -hmm. to see. That might have something to do with the, uh, not having the need to audition, but I guess there's no other way here. Of, uh, I think, Isabel, maybe it's because I've seen or heard or known about so many auditions that are so extremely badly oh, handled um, and they're so deeply unfair and, and some producers or people in charge knowing so little that actually they 
take what you are when you walk in and what you look like. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to think that maybe you had to be something different when you worked, and, and they don't seem to be able to draw it out of you. I suppose it's that it's been badly handled, really. I'm sure you're right. Maybe the concept is the only way. I don't know. If you can't see people working. Well, how how to scale was your beginning, if you're prepared to sketch it? I was, uh, compared to some of these other stories, rather uh, conventional. Um, uh, I was in high school, uh, and I was uh, just getting on the swimming team, which was a big deal for me because it meant acceptance. And I, now that I ponder the beginnings of why and how and where, uh, I think acceptance is probably a great motivating force in most actors, young actors' lives. Um, so I was thrilled. I was going to be on the swimming team. Somebody wanted me. <laughs> um, and uh, just as I was uh, doing my laps, um, this guy came in from the drama department and said, uh, you should come audition because we got, you know, 400 girls and not one guy came to the auditions for these plays. <laughs> so uh, I said, wow, two people want me. And uh, <laughs> I went and auditioned, first of many, and uh, got into a play called Thieves' Carnival by Jean Ennui. Wonderful play. Uh, got the lead part and uh, went through the whole rehearsal process and it was the best thing I'd experienced since softball because it was, you know. <laughs> uh, Where was it? Uh, in uh, George Washington High School in Washington Heights, Upper, up, uh, upper Manhattan, um, which is where I grew up. And uh, the rehearsal process was fantastic uh, because you were getting focus and yet there were enough people involved where you weren't getting that much focus. So it was, it was a familial um, environment. It was a collaborative thing. I mean, I, I never realized how important collaboration was to me until I stood on a movie set um, in Europe when I was in the middle of making a film, watching, you know, 150 of the, of the best people at what they do in the world all conspiring to make one moment happen. And I was so moved by that thought um, that I realized um, that the importance to me of, of being in an art form that is so collaborative and that is, uh, I don't know, I guess it's, it's the need and the desire for an extended family. But I'm digressing. Um, <laughs> or you're approaching the heart. Yeah. Either way. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, uh, the, the rehearsal process appealed to me and then we, we actually got an audience four times. We did four performances of this play at George Washington High School. And uh, the first one was sort of okay. Everybody applauded at the end very politely and I realized that I wasn't going to die. <laughs> so the second night I was actually even a little bit flamboyant, you know. <laughs> and they applauded even more and I realized, well, the more relaxed and flamboyant I am, the more they seem to like it. And it was the greatest aphrodisiac uh, on every level uh, that I had ever experienced um, was to do something and to feel its effect that it had on people um, immediately um, and uh, three-dimensionally. Um, and all I wanted to do was more of it. And uh, I went from one play to another in high school. When I entered college, which was uh, Lehman College in the Bronx, I knew that I was going to be a theater major. Um, I would be rehearsing one play in the afternoon and performing another play at night. I probably did uh, 25 plays while I was in college. Where? Uh, 
at, at Lehman. And then I went to the University of Minnesota, and same pattern. I realized I couldn't run away from it any longer. The life of a professional actor didn't appeal to me because I knew some people who lived in awfully dingy apartments <laughs> and <laughs> ate awfully bad food and seemed to have very, very ratty clothes <laughs> and um, lots of holes in their shoes. And uh, yet, here I was running towards something and running away from something. And uh, I seemed to be running toward it faster than I was running away. So that was when I came back to New York in 1973 with a Master of Fine Arts degree, which I use to this day. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but in invaluable to me. <laughs> covers a, a great hole I have in my wall at home. Um, and uh, I got my pictures and resumes and uh, began to get kicked in the teeth you know, on a daily basis until I, you know, like, like, uh, like uh, Scarlett O'Hara said, I never went hungry again. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have an agent? Did you get an agent when you, was I he helping you be I didn't get an agent until 1976 when I did a production at La Mama called uh, The Architect and the Emperor of Assyria. Um, that production was um, Mecca. I got an agent, I got an equity card, which I didn't have for three years, which was like catch-22. You can't audition without one. You can't audition and you can't, you know. And uh, my first trip to Europe, um, where we toured the provinces. <laughs> and, That's uh, invaluable. And it was an, an, a remark. I mean, you know, the, the deeper I got in, uh, just to digress again for a moment, the great thing about being involved in the theater is that it's, it holds a mirror up to the existential dilemma. And um, the thing that's most intriguing to me now are the people who are illuminating the, the lights and the darks that occur in the same moment in life. The love and the hate, the, the, the sun and the darkness, you know, the, um, um, and uh, really that's, I mean, when you, when you think about what a life is, it is for every action there is an equal and opposite mm -hmm. reaction. And, as um, difficult it is for an actor, and as many obstacles as are placed in an actor's way, there's something incredibly um, life-affirming about mm -hmm. reaching the finish line and about uh, having an occasional triumph. And, um, you know, some of us are luckier than others. Some get to have more triumphs than others. Uh, some people who have a remarkable amount of talent don't get that opportunity, and that's the sad part of it. Um, but um, but that too is life. Yeah, that too is life, and uh, it's been a very, very tremendous. I thank God for the theater and for. It's a very affirmative view too that you've given us. The, uh, Robin was sort of derogating applause as a reason for going on acting, as if you know self fulfillment on some other level to be preferred. But actually, applause is what everybody seeks, whether he's a dentist, or uh, to say something awful, or uh, uh, I, don't why, I don't know why dentists are always the people I think of as being people outside the suffering of all humanity in general, and only inflicting <coughs> suffering. But in any event, that is what we all seek, and one of the embarrassments is the discovery in age that one continues to seek it in age, that it is no less precious at, say, 75 than it is at 5. So that we're all performing for our parents, you know, 50 years after the death of our parents, we're still doing, we're still hoping for that applause. 
And I think that that's a perfectly genuine and wonderful thing to want. It is the only bond that we have with each other. Every other method of communication uh, has its alarms and fears, yeah. but not that. Yeah. I think it's one of the reasons that in most of the cases that I know about, and especially with opera stars, but with all actors um, on the stage, that they want people to come back afterward because they're coming down off such a tremendous high and there's a loneliness if somebody isn't mm -hmm. coming backstage and throwing oh, his arms around you. And do you feel that way? No, I, I don't feel you that way. You don't. don't. <laughs> well, so the, the only, you're, the, you're the, almost, there are three exceptions that I've known in my life. Uh, that's one of the reasons I said opera stars. There are no exceptions with opera stars. There's only the backstage and then uh, the wine and spaghetti. <laughs> no, Faith but what do you me. do then when, when, it's, when you've come? Well, what a dentist does, or what a plumber does. I mean, you've done your job and you go home. Well, <laughs> you're saying again what may not be true. I'm not sure that dentists and plumbers go home as readily as that. Most of them may be Most coming down off do a, a high. Day's work a heart surgeon comes down off such an emotional high, he can hardly stand it when he finishes the successful operation. He requires applause. I know that to be the case. It's an interesting point. Well, she's not taken that. You know, I, I just find, I find it. I mean, it may well be so, and that's right for one person or another. But I, I, I find it just a uh, to sort of propagate that idea. I find just extra so slightly dangerous somehow. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm an English actor. I don't know. Um, I, I, I shouldn't speak for her, but I think I'm right in saying that. Dame Maggie and I feel very much the same about it. We, we care about it very, very much, but it's a job and, and, and we, 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 we don't have that feeling. But who, 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 Ron, who how do you feel whether you're doing your job well or badly? It isn't only inward. No writer, well, for example, who comes to no the poet. room is going to tell me whether I've done it. <laughs> no, it's a, if it's a friend, I'm not talking about total strangers. I'm saying that you are being judged among other people by your peers and... Uh, isn't that important to you? Yes, but I, I don't find the two things are the same. Writers write for each other. They don't write for the people who read them. They write for each other. Yes, it's, it, 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 of course it's good to know that another actor likes it or a member of the audience and you know be, because they, they, they pay and they applaud and, and they come back again. But m maybe it's something personal. Maybe it's being an English I actor. Think I, it is. I think um, there's a reserve of an English actor. I don't know. It, you know. It's an English yes. actor's done it. I she agrees <laughs> with me. Um. I think it's different when you start out and then when you become a veteran. I mean, <clears throat> if I could just relate a story, in the early days, <clears throat> that was all important. And if people didn't come, you know, in the high school and college and early days of my New York acting, if I wasn't told I was good, I didn't know whether I was good because, but that was a deficiency in myself because what happened was one day, I can't remember when it was, but I remember I had finished doing a show and I thought I was really good in, on this particular night. And I put my hat over my eyes and I walked through the crowd and I had no regrets about anybody needing to tell me this or not. Mm -hmm. And that was the day that I think I became a professional, mm -hmm. a veteran, somebody who did this for a living and who um, knew when he put the bat to the ball and when he struck out. And, uh, you know, it, it, that, from that moment forward, although the respect of your peers and the adulation of your peers is one of the most satiating mm -hmm. things that one can ever achieve, um, it's really not 
no longer necessary, where it was so necessary in the beginning when I was trying to figure out if I had any talent or trying to figure out if I had any ability. Um, and it was... Uh, I think it's a it was a, good, a yeah, very happy very day and yeah, a very, very sad very day fun. because yes. uh, it was, um, uh, you know, mm. sort of a loss of innocence had mm. occurred on that day, mm -hmm. and you know, mm. um, you were blooded. Yeah, but, but in if, but in terms Thank of writers, you, well, so <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's, it's really important. We've never really touched on that before, but um, I never go backstage because I always feel it's it's an imposition that uh, you work very hard. Mm in a performance and, and you're terribly drained and tired and, and it's just one more imposition on you to go back. But that's a different reason yes, for it. Yes, that's but I've never thought of the restatement that you're talking about, that yes, I am good and I gave a good yeah. performance that you need to hear. I Robin, I'll we only have yeah, a I second. Yeah, I just want to say briefly that uh, along with what you both were saying, uh, the thing that I love is when someone comes back uh, after a performance and says, you know, I really admired your work, and, and, and they keep the focus on your work, and they're very, very affected, or they're very pleased that they came, and they don't treat you like you're superhuman. Uh, the thing that makes me most uncomfortable is when someone comes back and thinks that I'm not just like them, that I don't put my hat on and put my coat on and go yes, home. I, I find that It's just very like, thank you for the root canal. <laughs> it was a really good job. <laughs> it's like, thank you for your well, performance, you know. At that point, we're going to have to take a break now, okay. and, and, uh, there, once more, there, we were in the middle of, of, of getting at something. There's just not enough time. But we will get back to it, and there'll be questions from the audience. And so, uh, audience, stand, take a deep breath, have your questions ready. You find that there are volunteers from the wing, and you have a little button and give it to them. But come right back. Just take a stretch and come right back. This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York.
We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This seminar is on the performance, and we have a truly knowledgeable, talented, and gifted set of panelists here today. And Jean Dalrymple and <laughs> Brendan Gill. <laughs> I am so in awe of you, I suddenly got stage struck. Okay. And Brendan Gill will continue their talk and their discussion on what it is to work in the theater. From the actor's point of view, from auditioning to experience, to how the audience comes in to play and what it means to them. Would you like to pick this up, Brendan? Yes, we, there was an electrifying shock that ran through all of us when we discovered that we had a uh, Presbyterian from uh, <laughs> Augusta, Georgia, uh, in our midst. And it, it seemed to me it would be instructive if we could learn uh, more about how we got uh, the girl out of Augusta. Uh, Actually, I was born in Augusta, but I was raised in Lynchburg, Virginia. And uh, nobody in my family was ever in show business. And uh, which was a shock when I went into it. You're going, where? Um, <laughs> I um, actually I, I wasn't too popular in school until I became funny. Um, <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Just I started making cracks one day to teach her. <laughs> she kept me after school, but I made a lot of friends. Um, <laughs> and uh, with that, I used to play the piano for my school choir. And uh, one day he was holding auditions for this particular part, and nobody showed up. So I said. I'd like to try it. And uh, I got up and sang it. And he said, well, Faith, you can sing. And I said, yeah, I didn't know I could. And uh, so he gave me the part. And um, turns out I kept doing musicals. And it was my chorus teacher who uh, went to my parents finally at the end of my, I guess, junior year and said, you know, I really want you to seriously think about maybe um, Faith going to a, a, a special school for musical theater. And uh, my parents didn't know anything. And he said, I'd heard of this school called um, Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. And they had a um, BFA in musical theater. And he said, I hear it's a really great school. And uh, he said, I found out the information from auditions. And uh, I'd like for her to go. Well, as it turns out, I got laryngitis the weekend I was supposed to go. So he put together a tape of the shows I had done and songs I had done and uh, a video thing and sent it. And actually, I, I got in with the tape. And um, there were 12 students in my um, freshman year. And I was so overwhelmed when I got there, because I had the least training of anybody. I mean, these kids had been singing and dancing since they were five. <laughs> I just sat around and kind of looked at everybody. But um, it turned out to be the best place for me to be, because I really didn't have a strong voice. But I was a natural actress and a comedian. And I felt myself straying to the arts and science building, like doing Shakespeare, and I, I do straight plays over there. And at the end of my first year, um, I got warnings on my boards. And we had a series of boards we would pa pass each year. And I got warnings on my boards, and I said, well, you know, I thought I did well. And they said, well, yes, you were funny, but um, you came in funny, and we'd like to see what else you can do. And, and uh, so um, I worked really hard the next year, because I thought they were going to throw me out. I did all serious stuff. And um, they gave me, like, honorable mention. And uh, I kind of made it through my four years. And so after passing that, I was kind of ready for New York.
And then you came to New York? I did. Uh, did you continue studying here, or did you go right into the um, I did continue studying. I, I didn't really still sing very strongly, mm -hmm. and I studied with um, a teacher here in New York, Harry Garland, and he really changed my life. And I, I just want to tell you this short story, how I got my first job. Um, I'd been here two months. I came here in 1980, and my mother came to visit me. And a friend of mine was the understudy for um, a show called Scrambled Feet down at the Village Gate. And um, my mother and I went down to see it. And intermission came, and she leaned over me, and she goes, Faith, I think you could do that role. I said, oh, mother, you think I could do anything? She goes, no, I really think you'd be good in this role. The woman played the piano. It was three men, one woman. They were talking to some college students afterwards. I raised my hand. They go, yes, do you have a question? I said, yes. Do you need another girl? <laughs> it's as good as any way I know. <laughs> and they said, as a matter of fact, we're looking for someone. Do you play the piano? And I said, absolutely. And they said, do you sing? And I said, of course I do. <laughs> and um, so they gave me a date. I came back and, and auditioned. And that's how I got my first job. And I got an agent out of that. <laughs> After the American Theatre Wing School, how did you get your first job? Speaking to me? After the American oh. Theatre Wing School, after you... Oh, uh, well, a, a woman named Mary Hunter uh, intervened yeah. in my life. And we all, not all, but I saw the nodding of the head that Mary was a wonderful director and a fine woman. And I was doing one of their showcase scenes at the American Theatre Wing for agents and so on, but we were rehearsing for the big event. She was waiting for a taxi. This is, of course, a blueprint for success in the theater. She was waiting for a taxi because it was raining, and she had called a taxi. She came in and sat down in the back of the theater while I was rehearsing a scene from Three Men on a Horse. And she left and went when her cab came. Then Kermit Bloomgarten was uh, producing a play called Command Decision in 1947. And Mary Hunter didn't know me, nor I knew, did not know Mary. I was up in Peterborough, my first professional job, and she sent a wire to me and said, there is a part in this play that you must do. I did not know Mary Hunter from Eve. And I, she left a, a number, and I called her back, and she said, indeed, there is a part. That she said, how do you know me? She said, I was waiting for a taxi and watched you perform in this scene, and then... I got the part. I won't bore you with the rest of it. I had to borrow some money to fly down to New York uh, to, to audition for it for Kermit. And that's how I got my first How long was the run? A lovely part that gave me a Tony. Yeah. Mm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that timing is everything. Well, indeed, indeed, yes. And shave the dice if you can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and don't send telegrams anymore. <laughs> Anybody sent you a wire today, it wouldn't be delivered, you would never get it. Things are, technologically, it's much more difficult right. to have these Indeed. strokes of good fortune know, than it used to be. All we have is facts. Yeah. The same way with the, uh, uh, now we're halfway, 50-50, I think, about people and, in respect to auditioning and not auditioning. And then the question with me came up in connection with Faith about being funny. It seems to me that an awful lot of performers of whatever kind begin when they discover that to be funny provides access to, 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 to life, to, to, to the society that they're living in. And again and again, it is, it is to be funny, to be a clown at the beginning. You could be any kind of clownish thing. And after that, it ceases 
uh, to be necessary. But now, how many began as clowns? Clowns, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, there was. Well, what I was struck with, with what, what Faith, Faith was saying, was that uh, she was halfway through her educational process, and they decided, they, they decided that it was, it was, she was funny, but that that wasn't important because she needed to be serious. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's amazing how people will tell you, uh, what you what you lack. You know, and I mean, you know, there are a lot of agents in the business saying, now this is what you, and you come to this town with, with so much talent, but that's not important. It's what you don't have. I mean, it's what that, that they keep stressing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could be like the wandering Jew for the rest of your life, just trying to get back to what it is that initially, you know, with the, with the good advice of all these great educators that we sometimes come in contact with. I don't know why I brought that up, but... Uh, <laughs> Why would you want to take somebody who's funny and make them serious? I mean, you know. I think they were trying to expand me, but ultimately I came and was funny. <laughs> so that's why I was Well, to, to truly be funny, to be, to be a stand-up comic, to, to learn to be funny to all kinds of audiences and to work those audiences is the most valuable experience that one can have. And I don't know that young people have the opportunity to do that anymore. Is there, is there a training ground that, uh, for truly being a stand-up comic in one or a stand-up performer in one without having all the props and the benefits of, of the theater piece behind you and learning what the differences in the audiences I think are. it's difficult in England now because Music Hall is Mm -hmm. dead and I suppose the same applies to vaudeville yes. and therefore I, I suppose it's very difficult for those comedians to hone what they have to do because they're doing it on television or in smaller circuits whereas before people could go around for year after year after year with the same act and uh, that ground certainly doesn't exist anymore it's in, astonishing in how we get great comedians out of the absence of any possibility of proper training like a Robin Williams something like oh, yeah. that it's just yeah. astounding yes. that they seem to have all they're able to develop all that technique yes. and it can't be yeah. it can't be inborn the classic clown tradition ringing by the circus still has a school for training clowns but but but, but they are classic clowns who yes. are not really uh, the idea is funny, but the person himself is intention. There's no intention that he should be funny, mm -hmm. and and uh, the real clown, the Chaplin kind of Keaton kind of uh, clown, of course, is 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 filled with pathos, and is a heart is often in the end necessarily a heart a heartbreaking figure. Whether we would mm -hmm. that kind of clown would exist anymore, I don't know, and I don't know whether there is any. Buddy who would, who would qualify for I that. Don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I'd like to ask a, a question. Irwin wants to be no, that kind of person. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, you're right. That that's, kind of a that's exactly performer. what he's... What yeah. To Mr. Whitman, I wanted to ask why, why you chose to begin doing one-man shows. Was it the material or the need? Oh, no. It was, it was, it was nothing to do with an overweening ego at all. Uh, in fact, it was just the opposite. I ran the other direction. I didn't want to do it at all. Uh, but it was uh, on other, other people's ideas, and, and economics, as someone I mentioned earlier, does enter into what you limit the, the amount of outlay of money uh, by doing a one-person show. But uh, no, I, I, was, I was just at liberty, as we used to say, and, and, and was talked into it, really, and uh, was absolutely astonished when anybody stayed 
through the first act. I just <laughs> couldn't, couldn't believe it. Just yeah. couldn't believe but it. But who do you talk to during the intermission? <laughs> the same person I talk to all the time, me. <laughs> I think the important comedian is the one who fits into a part and makes it funny, if it has any possibility of being funny. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that happen over and over again. Someone that you have no idea as a comedian will play a part, a part that you think ought to be funny but never has been before, but she'll take it on and be hilarious. Mm -hmm. Like Nancy Walker. Nobody thought that she was funny. She was a dancer. And then one day she played a part and she was hilarious. And, and she's been hilarious ever since. <laughs> from the audience that there's so much that, that needs to be asked of these people that we're going to get started and please make your questions very short. Hi, I'm Roz Dunn and the questions, my question is for Ron or Robin or anybody on this very super special panel. Aren't there special moments when you sense that the audience is with you all the way and isn't it a gratifying, uh, it's a good feeling, it's special. <laughs> well, what happens when they're not? <laughs> <laughs> then what do you do? I think I'm that's the important thing. Would, would you like to answer? What do you do when you feel that you've got... <laughs> when they're not? I'd, yes. rather, I'd rather dwell on the... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's bad enough when that actually happens and having to relive it is... Um, the, 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 the amazing thing about the theater, which is... Uh, um, makes it unique in all of the performing arts um, is that there is a palpable um, relationship that goes on between the people in the audience and the people on stage. You can feel them. You can feel them listening. You can feel them enjoying themselves. You can feel them sleeping. You know, <laughs> you can feel them being bored. Uh, I don't know what it is or how it is. It's a metaphysical thing, but um, when you feel them getting everything, um, it's, uh, th there are no words to describe that. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, um, it's a tremendous, <laughs> yeah, it's a tremendously all-powerful, omnipotent feeling. Um, and it's, uh, it's very, it's rare. It's that it's, magic, and I hope it's, it's, it's what brings you back the next day, you know. Um, yes, this question is for Robin Morse. Um, I know that you're a member of the Manhattan Class Company, and I was wondering if you could tell us what that group is and how it functions. I'd love to. They'll be so happy. <laughs> um, the Manhattan Class Company is a not-for-profit organization, theater company that I've been with for about ten, no, eight, nine years. Um, it's run by Bobby Lupone and Bernard Telsey, and uh, it's located on 42nd Street, and it's it's a group that I'm very proud to be a member of. Um, I've really paid my dues there, I would say. I've, uh, it's a company that's about uh, nurturing the playwright, finding new playwrights, um, helping actors that are out of work, work, uh, directors. It's all about uh, finding the new, the new, the next voices. Thank you. Thank you. My question is to the entire panel. How do you resolve a difference of role interpretation that you might have between you and the director? 
Well, would you like to start, Mike, with that? That's an interesting question. What um, I usually go into the rehearsal process fairly open, and, and uh, actually, because the director is the person who has the scaffolding, the, uh, the design, if you will, in his mind, his or her mind. So I go into the process com completely willing to try and do whatever it is that they suggest. If I find that that is not working for me, and I give it a couple of weeks, the other thing that I do is try to wrap my perceptions of it around what the director is doing. Because again, it's clearly, if the director has any kind of vision at all, which that's his job, um, they know what it's supposed to look like when it finishes. If what I'm being asked to do doesn't fit me, then I can kind of shape it and mold it. I have rarely come into a, diff a situation where we absolutely disagreed. I have often disagreed with method. I have often disagreed with um, style. But ultimately, it's um, a kind of, it's a really a give and take. Faith, would you want to add? Yeah, I, I had, um, it was an interesting thing. I had only <coughs> one run-in with Jerome Robbins. <laughs> Which is, I mean, if you know him, <laughs> it was remarkable. Um, <laughs> I love the man. Um, it, but it was a timing thing. It was uh, uh, the scene from Gypsy. Um, I, I played Tessie Tura, one of the strippers. And um, he wanted me to push through a beat, just keep pushing through and um, faster. And I said to him one day, I said, you know, I, I think it could use some air. And he said, I don't want any air. It's not supposed to be funny. And I said, I think it's funny. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm the director, and I don't. And I said, well, I realize that, and I respect that. But I said, I think you're missing a laugh here. So we got on stage, and sure enough, the audience interjected there and stopped me. I didn't even have to let air into it. Hmm. And he walked up to me, and he said, take the pause. Yeah. But, good director. But, I had yeah. to, but I had to go with his, you know, I mean, I yeah. challenged him on it. it. Yeah. I'm Kevin Petito, and I have a question for the panel. Um, I'm currently working in the revival of Gypsy, and I see it among my cast members. I'm wondering what you folks do. When you're currently working, are you studying or doing furthering your training for other things, or what do you do currently when you're working? Well, who would like to take that? <laughs> 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 well, let's start with this. Robin, what do you do? I sleep a lot. <laughs> Um, I, as I said before, I work with the Manhattan Class Company so I can, you know, keep stretching myself. I direct things there. But I, 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 I'm not in, right now, I'm not taking any classes. Um, I'm just, uh, I go to have movies. Have you in the and past, what? have you taken classes while you're working? Have you I have on occasion, but the one thing that I've discovered, though, is working in and of itself can be a really <coughs> enlightening experience. So what I try to do when I, when I take a job is I take it for its challenge to see what, what it is I can learn about myself, about the situation, whatever. And after a point, after you've done a show for a while, you feel like you've learned everything there is, then you go and you find something else that, that you can possibly work on in the show. And sometimes that, that in itself can be an incredible challenge. Thank you very much. One lesson or one show is worth ten lessons. I've heard exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, my name is John Francis Fox. My question is for Margaret Isaac. 
Can you explain the difference between playing an essentially comedic part like Lottie and a heavily dramatic part like Cousin Bet? Uh, mm, well, I don't, I don't, uh, perhaps it's not quite honest to say I don't think of them very differently, really. I mean, I, I, who am I? What am I? Who is this character? Uh, I mean, obviously, one is aware of certain technical things more when you're playing a comedy on stage, but I, I, I find it very difficult to answer. I, it, I play that character, and I happen to think Cousin Bet was really quite funny. This was a television years and years ago. Um, I don't... I think possibly Lottie is far more difficult because it is comedy. And I find that far more difficult, really. Thank you very much. Thank you. I wanted to ask um, Ron Perlman whether you found it necessary to create an empathy between yourself and a character that you say is so far from you, like Colonel Jessup, whether you have to make up a scenario of, of unhappy childhood or <laughs> abuse. or I mean, just to, to bring that dark and that light that you were speaking about. He's such a kind of dark character. Is he? Well, I think <laughs> <laughs> no. He's really sweet. I'm sure. I've never sure had the pleasure <laughs> of seeing it performed by myself, but he's, uh, a, little, he's <laughs> a little scary. I'll say it's just a little scary. Well, that's good, I guess. Uh, I think that's probably what the playwright intended. Um, uh, all of us as actors have to find the positive. You can you can't play negatives. You can't play um, negative energy. You have to find something in this character that you think drives him and that you uh, think is his life force. I mean, that's, that was the exercise for me in this thing. And um, I have chosen to look upon Nathan Jessup as a great hero mm -hmm. who has a probably, mm, this is circumstantial, just been in a few theaters of operation where his thinking got a little bit distorted. Um, and that's all. But every, every choice is, is a positive one, and, and um, uh, th there's no way he could have gotten to where he is if he didn't have a, quite a, uh, uh, an incredible impact would on you what ever it was think, that he did. Would you ever refuse to play a part th that the, where the part was so, um, you know, repugnant to you? I mean, or just you had Absolutely. nothing to do it? Because with young actors starting out, it's really hard, you know. Yeah, it's the actor's prerogative is to be able to say no. Good afternoon. My name is Walker Christie, and uh, this question is from Margaret. Um, do you and what do you see as the major differences in styles between American actors and British actors in their training and their approaches to roles? I don't really know because I've not worked here with American actors. I think perhaps some of the things I've observed from talking to American actors, perhaps they have tended to uh, talk a little bit more about their work than the <laughs> an English actor does, uh, which is which is which is. I'm not saying that that it's wrong in any way. Um, uh, but whatever the ways are, um, there's there's no one right way. You just take whatever's good from for you from. I want, to, uh, I want to add to that and ask, have you changed your, your performances at all 
for the American audience as, as uh, from the British audience? No, let us love it. No, not change of performance really, but perhaps technically sometimes one is very much more aware that you're speaking in an accent that is perhaps a little alien to some of the people, and therefore one want, one's diction has to be rather more specific than maybe back home. And Peter's dialogue, if somebody doesn't hear a word, they're not likely to imagine what that word could be, because it's very special. It's very interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Dennis Fury. Uh, my question is for the panel. Uh, Ms. Tyzak, you spoke earlier, earlier of your the chemistry between yourself and Miss Smith, uh, Miss Prince and Miss Morris, and the rest of you are in very intimate ensemble shows um, to a greater or lesser extent. My question is this, when an understudy goes on or a replacement comes in in a long run, what do you do to maintain that chemistry? Well, very, very briefly, uh, the chemistry people, other people talk about really, that there's uh, nothing really I'm sort of particularly aware of. Well, you're just so, so incredibly busy helping them and giving them confidence and uh, th th that's, that's the main thing that you think about, right. uh, their survival and the play's survival and making them feel happy, comfortable and confident, if it's possible, in such a hair-raising situation. <laughs> so that, that technical thing, in my mind, takes over far, far more. Well, I think that's a, the cooperation that you've all talked about, mm. that, that cooperative balance that comes, takes place in the theatre where everybody is rooting for each other and helping and um, I have to bring this to an end it's, it's once more not enough time and, and uh, we've been listening to the American Theatre Wing's seminars on working in the theatre which are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and uh, I am president of the American Theatre Wing which created the Tony Award and I hasten to add that it's a very important award, but it's not for the best of any kind. It is for having achieved a degree of excellence in the craft of theater. And everything that the American Theater Wing does stems from that very premise of trying to explain the theater and bring the theater to people who can't come to it. The programs that we do are the same programs that created the American Theater Wing so many years ago. We continue to serve the community with our, our programs on hospitals and bringing live professional theater to hospitals and our Saturday Theater for Children program which brings again live theater to children on Saturday mornings in their schools. The seminars, a ticket program in which young people can go and see professional theater. The wing cares about the theater and I think it is perhaps a well-chosen care because I know of no other organization, no other commodity that gives so much to so many. And so thank you very much for being here at this panel on the performance. Thank you again. <laughs>